Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a quick, uh, not a Turing test, but um, when one's talking to art people, you look up and you say, hmm, all power corrupts, but PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. <laughs> it works. Fine, we're in the right area. That, that's very good. And you will immediately notice two things, that uh, Charles Babbage is smoking a cigar, except, of course, it's not. It's Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Um, and tomorrow, um, Sidney Padua will tell us why he's smoking a cigar. And more to the purpose, she'll tell us why Ada is smoking a pipe. Uh, you will see about that. Now, there's a reason for that image, because um, I've attended the workshops yesterday, which are uh, wonderful, uh, and a wonderful range of speeches uh, and talks and subjects. And somebody said to me, uh, Ada is a hostess interdisciplinary. She brings all the disciplines together around her. And it seems to be true. Uh, and I've noticed that very much today. But I've also noticed another thing, which is that there's been a tremendously tight concentration on Ada and Babbage. And I want to open that up as a biographer, just in the little time we've had. I hope many of you know this. Of course, it's at number 10, St. James's Square. Um, it's uh, where she uh, was working uh, for a lot of time when she was uh, working uh, with Babbage, although also in the country. Um, I'm interested in the form of that. Um, first of all, it's just pioneer of computing. Of course, there's nothing else. That's the tagline. It doesn't actually say the first programmer, but it does say computing. But it leaves out a lot else. And I'm also interested by lived here. Where did she live? I don't mean the fact that they were a very wealthy family. And of course, they had the Kings the Lovelaces. They had houses in Surrey. Um, uh, and of course, in Somerset, Ashley Coombe, which will take us to Coleridge in a minute. But what I mean more historically, um, she lives in that revolutionary, industrial revolutionary period, the men with the big boots, all right? And there's some very interesting, both combination and conflict indicated in that image. But so she lives in that industrial world of the 1830s and 40s, which I want to talk about. She also lives in something which I feel hasn't sufficiently been looked at for a moment, in a great tradition of women in science and women mathematicians. For example, Madame du Châtelet, a great friend of Voltaire, a fine mathematician uh, who wrote a whole thesis on the nature of fire. Uh, in France, Sophie Germain, another fine mathematician. Uh, Mary Somerville, who I will talk about a bit more. And then Ada, and then you could go on to, for example, Maria Mitchell, the American astronomer, the first woman professor at Vassar, who Ada mentions in her letters, and we might come back to her. So she also belongs, she lives in that tradition as well, and that's very important to us. And finally, it's quite evident now, she lives now in a very important tradition of setting up a model for women, and maybe particularly young women in science, in the STEM disciplines. Um, and I'm, I wrote uh, some time ago about Mary Wollstonecraft, and there's a wonderful essay by Virginia Woolf, which concludes that her life was an experiment, and we see it still. She is living among us now. And there's a sense in which Ada Lovelace is exactly what is happening now. She is living and important to us now because of what she represents. And this is partly what I want to explore by widening the focus um, a little bit away from Babbage. There's a wonderful remark that uh, Lord Byron, who never knew his daughter, of course, that tragic, never knew her, he wrote in an early letter, this is two lines, I just love them, he says, is the girl imaginative? Is she passionate? 
I hope the gods have made her anything save poetical. <laughs> it is enough to have one such fool in the family. A very Byronic joke. But that's interesting and we'll come back to that. And then uh, a letter that Ada wrote from this address um, from 10 St. James's Square when she was 25, March 1841, to her mother who was in Paris, incidentally a connection which hasn't been made. Uh, Ada is frequently going over to France and she knows what work in science is being done in France and also, in fact, in Germany, but we'll come back to that. Here's this wonderful letter. Uh, just, again, two lines. Dearest Mama, pray find out all you can for me about everything curious, mysterious, marvellous, electrical, etc., etc., etc. Be my wonder and mystery hunter. And that seems to me something wonderful about Ada and uh, that quality of exuberance, which if you read her letters, uh, people say mania. My God, I've worked on Coleridge's private journals and letters and opened it. <laughs> Ada was a very calm person. <laughs> and, and I also have to tell you, the young Shelley, the young atheist Shelley, his letters, wild, wild. So um, there's a very interesting sort of gender issue here. Maybe, maybe a young woman is not allowed to write letters, so maybe, but she is now. She is among us in the living. So um, that sense of her exuberance, um, it's tremendously strong to me. And one of the reasons I've been drawn uh, to her as a subject. Now, um, just this, we've seen these images, um, and I want to set up something a little bit provocative here. Uh, just to, that's the 1835, the one uh, on the right, which is really when she was being presented at court. Um, and in fact, we know from her letters, she didn't like this image. It had partly been organized by her mother to give the profile, the Byron profile, but we know what she said is, my jaw in that picture is long enough to have the word mathematics written right the way down <laughs> it. It's very, very interesting, that. Um, but there you are, you could say that's the cool mathematical image. And then on the right, a little bit later, this was a, a costume that she put on because um, w at the time that Lord Lovelace was made a count, and so it was her countess costume. Um, it's always struck me as sort of wild and eccentric. And I finally found out that she looked at this picture and she, she thoroughly disapproved of it. Uh, she says, um, it's, uh, it's stiff and in, in an most extravagant fashion, which is putting it mildly, I think. Uh, but those two images, why I put them up, is because they look, they operate a sense of something opposed in her nature, as it were, the cool mathematician and the wild poetical. And I think when you study her, the whole point of Ada is that she combines these in a way. So that's a false opposition. And you could do an elegant dissertation saying that represents a divide between the two cultures. You could, you could do a, a dissertation on that. And I want to look at this in a different way. Now, as a biographer, uh, we'd have the real biographer, Julia Marcus is going to talk to us tomorrow. Um, and we have Miranda Seymour here who is writing a biography. And I can tell you as a biographer, when you o look over Ada's life, it is a fantastically ranging, talk about exuberance. I, I made a list of what are the things starting at home. I would, uh, her childhood, I'm going to come back to this, quite extraordinary. Her mother, remember, was an expert in childhood care and education. Very dangerous thing to be. Um, then Ada on the subject of uh, riding, waltzing, skating, harp playing, three hours a day, and then the piano. Also there's some hint about billiards, and there's even a story of her going round and round a table playing a fiddle as she goes round and round the billiard table. Sea bathing, Ada on sea bathing. One of the places she goes to is Brighton partly to get better, partly because it's very fashionable. And there's a wonderful Ada note on swimming and swimming costumes, right? Now, Ada ex uh, ex describes that most of the women there are wearing outfits with big sort of bustles around here, very protective and very proper. And she says, there's a, a liquid hydraulics problem here, that if you have that, it fills with air and it tilts you over and you turn upside down. 
most improper. Instead, let's have a one-piece bathing suit, which is what she will wear, and then she will move smoothly through the water. She slightly spoils it at the end, saying the shingle is very bad at Brighton, so I would include heavy boots. Again, a a, a wonderful Adaism. I'm just just giving you some ideas. The whole question of Ada bringing up those three children, in a way, is quite a tragic thing. And the the relationship is very interesting with with all three children. Uh, And that would be something, as a biographer, one want to look at that relationship. Um, Her complicated flirtations... I'll put it no further than that, but there are, there's a Mr. Knight, not Mr. Knightley, Mr. Knight, Mr. K, Mr. Carpenter, Mr. Cross, and the exact nature of those relationships, and I assume nothing as a biographer. What I do notice is that Ada had the extraordinary gift of attracting people. She refers to her colony of people. People really, the famous enchantress, they really were magnetized by it. It's perfectly evident that that's the case. Um, which doesn't necessarily imply anything sexual at all, but there was this kind of a, mag- uh, a kind of magneticism, which is important anyway. And very evident that would be to a biographer. Um, how questions of uh, music I mentioned. She was an opera fan. She adored Donizetti. So when we had the music just now, and indeed that modern um, Ada opera, I thought perfect, perfect. Uh, and she gives very good accounts of going to opera. Her writing, we know a lot about. Uh, you know about the, the gambling, but also she loved horses, and I'll come back to that, that's very important. The opium letters I've mentioned, um, one would want to write about that. And then her interest in literature, we know she had uh, a good relationship with Charles Dickens, and I'll come back to that. And there may be other people, which I will just look at towards the end, notably Tennyson. I want to send a hair running there. And then widening out this focus her astonishing awareness of what was going on in the sciences and technology generally. We've been just talking about the computer. But if you go through her letters, for example, she is fascinated by railway construction, railway times, the Brunel bridges. She's travelled on a lot of them. She writes about aeroplanes, we'll come back to that, and air balloons, about early calculating machines, about the atmospheric railway. Wonderful letter of this atmospheric railway which designed in South London, which was uh, literally, it used a vacuum system. 20, about 20 miles were built, and she describes travelling in it at 25 miles an hour. But being Ada, she also gives the exact gradient of the ascent that it was going up at 25. And she said, that's what's impressive. It's the gradient. All right. and so that's absolutely how Ada's mind works. The whole question of electrical telegraphy, we've the name Wheatstone has come up, but of course he was the, uh, one of the great early inventors of the electrical telegraph. In fact, his invention was overtaken by Morse eventually. The Americans managed to uh, exploit it more efficiently, uh, typically, than us. But Wheatstone is a very important figure. I mentioned uh, Maria Mitchell, um, who, that first professor of Russell, discovered an early comet and incidentally came over to London, bringing with her the first photograph of a star. Very interesting, very triumphant, to show it to the Royal Society, who were very sniffy about it, actually. Uh, but um, we'll come back to her. So Maria Mitchell, um, she's interested in photography and daguerreotype. I'll expand on that. She's interested in early evolution theory, Lamarck. She reads Lamarck. She's interested in that. And again, there's a further extension of that. Um, she's interested in animal intelligence, um, She's interested in mesmerism. I noticed one of the musical sketches, the third one was called Mesmerism, uh, and how scientifically it can be assessed. She's interested in steamboats, wonderful accounts of travelling over to Harvard, what the timetable is, um, how long does it take, uh, do the tides and things affect it or not. She's interested in electrical induction and early field theory, Faraday's early field theory, and we know certain um, uh, exchanges of letters about She's also interested in the history of science and scientific discovery. This is something I'll try and expand on because I don't think people realise this quite, um, how her theoretical interest works. And of course, she, one of the last great things she does is the great exhibi- exhibition, 1851, uh, and that she goes, she writes about it, and of course, Babbage writes about it, Dickens writes about it. She's absolutely fascinated by it, even when she's very ill. So there's that astonishing range 
uh, of interests. Uh, so th uh, the image, Betty's image of the kaleidoscope is, is doubly effective for that reason. And anybody writing about her would need to be able to cover that huge expanse. Now, what I would like to do um, is look at um, around her a number of people who she knew or whose books she read and I think uh, affected the way she thought. Um, and these, um, I'll try and talk about some of them. Mary Somerville is going to be very important. We'll go straight to her. Um, but also William Huell, also Faraday, also Harriet Martineau, also Mr. Anonymous. I shall come back to him. And possibly Alexander von Humboldt. So we'll just see uh, what we can fit in in that time. Uh, but before doing that, before expanding that picture, I want to do the reverse. Biographers love doing this. They can say, I'm going to give you the huge panorama, and now look at this tiny little spot. And that's what I want to look at, three tiny little spots. The cat. We've, had the, we've mentioned the cat. This is Madame Puff. This is Ada's cat, with whom she had long conversations, with whom... She had letters in French possibly written by Ada's cat, or certainly written about Ada's cat. All the trouble in the household, usually Ada was responsible, not Ada. Ada's mum said she was responsible for it, but actually it was the lovely Puff who was responsible for making her late, for making her being mischievous. Um, and this drawing, I know it's rather weak, but it is something very touching. It's drawn by her mother, Lady Byron. The Lovely Puff in a Sweet Slumber, 3rd of June, 1825. And that's also something about the mother-daughter relationship. And that's the signature at the bottom. Anna, Isabella, Noel, Byron, Pinksit, painted it 3rd of June, 1825. Um, and that um, is from a commonplace book. Um, and Puff has an extraordinary um, later life. One thing I want to suggest to you is this, that I think um, Ada, throughout her life, had a very acute and perceptive relations, uh, knowledge of, understanding of animals. And it begins with the cat, and later in her life, it's the horse. she has many horses, dogs in the country, and they, they follow her around. She names everybody, every horse, every animal in the house has a name, probably a personality, probably writes letters as well, not necessarily in French. But this, this is an important thing. Ada, who we've been focusing on, Ada and the machine, the clink clunk. But Ada also has this understanding of the very thing which is not a machine an animal, and an empathetic word. And it runs right through her letters. And again, the sense of the kaleidoscope, uh, her extraordinary range in, in that way. And there's just a little a footnote this to pin this down, that, as it were, I'm not making it up. In 1844, March, after her translation notes had been published, the Scottish playwright Joanna Bailey writes to Mary Somerville, and I'm going to talk about her in one moment, who is then in Italy. And she writes this wonderful sentence to Mary. She says, The lady, I can't do the Scottish accent, I'll try, the lady who we know so well as little Ada, whose chief conversation used to be about a Persian cat, Puff by name, is beginning to be known a little in the literary world. And that's the moment that she's published uh, that translation. So uh, I just introduced that one to make you think slightly differently about uh, Ada's mind and her imagination, how she works. Second one. Now, uh, th there was a big talk in the workshop yesterday about this. Uh, this is Ada age probably 11 or 12. Neither of those are uh, originals. The bird, in fact, is drawn by Otto Lilienthal, who's a flight expert, but later on in the century. But why I've given that is to explain the way Ada was thinking. This 11 or 12-year-old girl, we know somewhere around this time she had measles and she was in bed for 18 months and she was moving around on crutches. So the idea of flight... Aha! Ah, you see Ada's influence. Very good, thank you very much. Um, because that bird wasn't flapping enough, perhaps. The, um, 
the fact that she, there she is in bed, or at least not able to move, uh, the idea of flight becomes very important to her. I would also have to say something gendered, that I would, it wouldn't be so surprised if it was a little boy of 11 or 12 thinking about flying. <coughs> Much more unusual that it was Ada thinking about flying, I think. Now, more than that, I've written a whole book about balloons in the Victorian period, and the thing that astonishes me is Ada wasn't interested in balloons. Why? Because they were too uncontrolled. There was no way of getting decent equations out of them. Whereas the bird and flight was something. And here's from just little notes from her letters. This is to her mother. I'm going to begin my paper wings, my paper wings, tomorrow. And the more I think of writing a book, flyology, to be illustrated with <coughs> plates, that's what would happen, if I ever really invent a method of flying, signature, <coughs> yours, dearest, carrier pigeon. Ha. A, and she's becoming that thing. And she, we've, we've found out that Ada has a flying room which has ropes above it so she can imagine herself flying with the wings. Um, and then, very interesting, she says, I'm going to take the exact pattern of a bird's wings in proportion to the size of its body. So at 11 years old, she's understood that if something's going to fly, the body weight and length must have some proportionate relationship with the wing size. Now, I suggest that is pretty unusual at 11 years old then, all right? And so she thinks in that way. And then she thinks, and this is why the second illustration is there, to make the thing in the form of a horse with a steam engine inside it, so contrived as to move an immense pair of wings fixed on the outside. And of course, A, she's, she realized it needs a power source. This is a great problem for the 19th century to solve. Uh, but also, she's come back to Pegasus, because she adores horses and the very poetic idea of the flying horse. Um, and in fact, um, we then find this. This is from uh, a recently a discovered notebook, by, uh, which is in the property of William Sinclair, which is a, a commonplace book, which was in the Noel family. And uh, this looks like it's a picture of Ada. It's, uh, it's got the Byron quote about Ada written on the side, a uh, handwritten picture of Ada, who says that she decided to move from flying to horses. All right, it might be easier to do. But she does say this, and again, this says so much to me. I have now decided upon making much smaller wings, not nearly large enough to actually fly with, but enough to explain perfectly to anyone my project for flying, and it will serve as a model for my future real wings. Again, that's a science way of thinking of it. I'm going to make a model which will have all the conception of this machine in it, I won't be able to build the actual machine, but I'll have the model of it. Where are we going to hear that? All right. And this is still Ada at 11 or 12 years old. And then one more link. 18, we're, back in the, we're now forward to the 1840s. And when she's talking about um, the way uh, she thinks mathematics and science can take us outwards, and I'll talk a little bit more about the idea of discovery, she uses this phrase, those who have learned to walk on the threshold of the unknown worlds, by means of what are commonly termed par excellence the exact sciences, may then, with the fair white wings of imagination, hope to soar further into the unexplored amidst which we live. So there's her flying machine now as a, a mental symbol of the imagination. Finally, as our little glimpses, this. Um, this is, comes from a later date. Uh, there was still no photograph of the moon. This amazingly is, based, is a painting based on some of the observations of both William Herschel and John Herschel. Um, and Ada was fascinated by this, but she uh, received a letter from her mother in Paris who teased her and said, we've got, um, uh, there is new French information about the moon, but this uh, this would only interest you from a scientific point of view. 
not from a poetical one, the moon being a wonderful poetical subject. And this is what Ada replies. Tell the hen, not a bird there, that's how much she called her mum in that friendly way. Tell the hen, I'm vexed at her thinking I can only take a mathematical, astronomical view of the heavens. And that if I were to write verses on the moon, the subject would be the living things of our satellite. And then she goes, in effect, to write a prose poem about the moon. I would wonder whether its surface so fair and so bright would open as perplexing a perspective of mixed weal and woe as our own orb, the Earth, does. So she imagines being on the moon and, and then looking back. I should wonder whether the shadows which are dimly visible in her glittering countenance, are truly emblematic of the spiritual state suited to her physical conditions. And then, in short, um, I could compose a very sublime poem, but not a word therein of mathematics and the laws of motion. So the hen has not quite such a kooky daughter as she supposes. Uh, I'd love to suggest that's the first time the word cookie, which possibly is the ancestor of geeky. Uh, and there it is in one of Ada's absolutely wonderful letters. And then that, in fact, that planetary imagery continues throughout her writing. Um, here's just one example. 1844, the year that she uh, had completed the, uh, the translation notes. I seem to myself as if condemned to liberty, condemned to liberty, as if I were ordered by providence to be a wandering and erratic star among the boundless heavens, in vain seeking for entrance into some planetary system, in vain praying to obey some sun. That idea might be developed into a fine poem, the disobedient and wandering star. There's, uh, there's Ada, an image of herself for a moment, that sense, condemned to liberty, the disobedient and wandering star. Well, those are my, just focus, just to try and make you think a little bit differently about Ada, the kaleidoscopic Ada. Um, and now I would like to just now expand out a little bit. Um, Mary Somerville, uh, just there was a lovely que question for over there on that word connection, which picks up, and of course it relates to um, Mary Somerville's great book on the connection of the physical sciences. I put in each of these images just to show you that these texts are now current and available. Uh, so just to say something about Mary Somerville, who I think was tremendously important in Ada's life. Um, they, when they met, of course, it was uh, one of the reasons that she could meet Babbage, uh, because uh, Mary Somerville got on very well with her mother. Uh, and therefore was a great friend of, of Babbage, and therefore socially this was allowable. Uh, Mary Somerville was 54 at the age they met, Ada 18. So again, a very, very interesting, um, that kind of divergence, a dynamic between them. She, we know very early on that uh, Ada mentions this On the Connection of the Physical Sciences book, 1834, the very year it's published. And she is obviously fascinated by it, and I'm just going to look a little bit closer why. Um, for a start, Mary Somerville, completely different background, Scottish, born on Burnt Island, which is sort of just north of Edinburgh, uh, naval connections of her father, who died quite young, um, a very unhappy first marriage, and then a very successful second marriage to William Somerville, uh, fellow of the Royal Society, who'd been, who'd been a traveller, also in the Navy, and come back, and was immensely kind and supportive to Mary Somerville throughout their two lives together. And they made one of those households that attract people, and the moment Ada got to know them, they almost adopted her, and she, she went over, they had a house at Ch Chelsea Hospital in South London, and the pattern of visiting Babbage, to begin with, was she, Ada, would go over on a social visit to the Chelsea Hospital, to the Somervilles. They would put her in a coach and take her up to first Dorset Street, number one Dorset Street, which is uh, where Babbage held his great parties, his great Saturday champagne, science champagne parties. Oh, I wish we'd been there. All right. <laughs> uh, and he, he held those for about 30 years. And everybody came to that. 
everybody came to those parties. I mean, just Charles Lau, for example, that's where um, Ada would have met him and known about his book. So she is a, a fantastic enabler, and even down to uh, the wonderful descriptions that they sit down and they, there's a, a whole evening they spend Babbage, Mary, Somerville, and Ada discussing what does discovery mean? What does the word discovery mean? All right, and we'll follow that up. She also overnights. She she's allowed to stay with the Somervilles, so she gets away from. I wouldn't say specifically her mother, but in a way she gets away from that barren background for a moment. So Mary Somerville is immensely enabling, and her own career which had started held up by this very unhappy first marriage. She starts late. She begins to publish uh, papers on uh, solar light, polarization of solar light in the uh, Royal Institution's uh, uh, philosophical transactions. And then she's challenged to do, guess what, a translation. And it's a translation of Laplace, his uh, La Mé Mécanique Céleste, very technical, difficult book, but she translates it. There's wonderful descriptions. <coughs> like Jane Austen, she hides the papers when anybody comes into the room so they don't, they don't know she's translating. It's a brilliantly successful translation, The Mechanism of the Heavens, uh, and it in fact is used uh, in Cambridge by the undergraduates. They're the first uh, woman's textbook, all right, in translation. I just note that's how she begins, by translating. Not her own work, by translating. And then, having done this so successfully and written a very interesting introduction to it, John Herschel suggests, why doesn't she write her own book? And remember this dialogue, Wheatstone, Babbage, why doesn't she write her own book, and so on. And uh, Mary Somerville does write it, and it's on the connection of the physical sciences, uh, which is published in 1834. Just let me say a word about that, um, that it's uh, quite extraordinary. Published by John Murray, uh, the same publisher of Byron, Jane Austen and so on. It becomes his best-selling text up to The Origin of Species. Okay? Uh, it's, quite, it's a 500-page book, um, you, you can read there, presented in 37 short chapters and they reduce the traditional vague panorama of natural philosophy into something much tighter modern field that we would recognize as the higher sciences, astronomy, physics, chemistry, geology, geography, meteorology, and electromagnetism. And a lot of the most up-to-the-date stuff is in that last section. Um, and she has a particular style of very clear logical explanation, but which she can let go at certain moments, all right? And then remember poetical science. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, universal gravity, a force equally present, a force equally present in the descent of a raindrop as in the falls of Niagara, in the weight of the air as in the periods of the moon. So it's suddenly just to make you think, get you away from that falling apple, all right? Uh, and then she goes, she then says it also is responsible for certain disturbances in nature, um, which uh, is her reading of Laplace. Every tremor it excites in any one planet is immediately transmitted to the furthest limits of the system in oscillations, like sympathetic notes in music or vibrations from the deep tones of an organ. Now, that's the way that Mary Somerville writes about science constantly. While doing the simple, straightforward explanation, she then opens it up for a moment. And I, this is what absolutely fascinated Ada. I'll give you uh, a couple more examples of that. The propagation of sound may be illustrated by a field of corn agitated in the wind. A wonderful image, and that's how sound propagates. Um, Anyone who has observed the reflection of the waves on the wall on the side of a river after the passage of a steamboat will have a perfect idea of the reflections of both sound and of light. Again, wonderful image. Uh, the steamboat moves. We've all seen that, the ripples. That's a way just to explain that, to lead you into the subject. And the, she's also very, very interested in... 
uh, material that's at the very edge of scientific perception. So she writes about, of course, infrared rays and ultraviolet were discovered, and she calls them undulations beyond the human optic nerve. And she speculates particularly on what function they might have, infrared and ultraviolet, which we now know, of course, it does, in the animal kingdom. We are altogether ignorant of the perceptions which direct the carrier pigeon, Edison, to his home, or those in the antennae of an insect which warns them of the approach of danger. And again, that wonderful way of suggesting that scientific knowledge has got so far, but there are things we don't know, and that's what we should be interested in. And this clearly connects with the way Ada's mind is working, so that um, she writes uh, a little after reading The Connection, that famous description of mathematical science shows, shows us what is. It is the language of the unseen relations between things. But to use and apply that language, we must be able to be fully, to fully appreciate, to feel, to seize the unseen, the unconscious. And that is an idea that's come out of uh, Mary Somerville's writing and then has been fully adopted by Ada, that notion of science and the scientific imagination. Now, there's more to be said about that, but I'll try and come back to it in a different way. Uh, I need to say that that relationship, which I think was immensely supportive to Ada, it was broken because simply that the Somerville family, who of course a lot older than her, uh, were down in financial terms. They couldn't go on living in London. So that, like so many of the generation, indeed of the Romantic writers, they went to Italy. Uh, and they lived out in Italy, in Naples and in Florence. Um, and in fact, um, uh, Mary Somerville's tomb is still there. It needs repair. It's, uh, it's cracked. Uh, maybe that will happen. We will see. Um, and uh, she is visited not by Ada, but Maria Mitchell, the American astronomer, comes out there. So she's a great focus, and she's always looking back at Ada. And long after Ada's death, in her own personal reminiscences, uh, Mary Somerville describes that relationship uh, and with great fondness. And in fact, quite interestingly, she actually says, it was me who led Ada into mathematics. Well, we know the story is much more complicated than that. Um, and just one thing which would have amused Ada, I think, uh, when Maria Mitchell goes out there, um, they want to do some astronomical observing. And Mary Somerville, who's very famous now with this uh, European reputation and publishing other books, she says, yes, we can. I, I would love to take you to the Vatican Observatory. There's one problem, Maria, which is the um, authorities of the Vatican Observatory will only allow women in in daylight. <laughs> so beautifully told. It's a wonderful Maria Mitchell joke. Right, now I'm going to slightly speed up. I'm very well aware this is the last. You're hanging on in there and focus is difficult to hold. So let me just speed you now through. Remember my overall thing, I'm trying to give you a frame in a way that we haven't quite looked at it before. Now here is Babbage, but Babbage is the author of one of the Bridgewater treaties. And his great friend, and in the end great rival, William Huell, uh, North Country man who becomes very powerful, um, writes a number of papers, notably the history, uh, of, uh, history of the inductive sciences, a history of the inductive sciences, and then finally a follow-up, the philosophy of the inductive sciences, a great theoretician of early and mid-Victorian science. Um, and he wrote the, one of the first of the Bridgewater treaties, these were uh, launched in 1829, quite early, uh, inspired by William Paley. And the idea basically was to show that science justified the creation by God. That was the basic challenge, all right? And uh, William Huell took on the um, one which is called Astronomy and General Physics in 1833. And Babbage, his old friend, was shocked and dismayed by this. And so he wrote, in 1837, the Ninth Bridgewater Treatise, which had not been commissioned, all right? Okay. This was Babbage causing uh, mischief, all right? Now, um, 
I'll just I'll give you a couple of examples of it, because I know uh, Ada incidentally wrote, read the Huell book and wrote to her mother about it, and of course read the Babbage Treatise, which first of all she began complaining he'd written it too fast. But it contains some very interesting ideas. I'll just see if I can just sketch a couple of them. Um, in answer to Huell's idea that, um, that the biblical creation, we could still accept this, and that species were individually created, and also extinction of species were individually, God was intervening. All right. uh, Babbage was uneasy about this. So he wanted to suggest some other uh, mechanism, all right, without directly claiming that he was an atheist. He just wanted to suggest another mechanism. So basically what he does is he suggests that God really has an enormous calculating or analytical engine. <laughs> right? And what he's set in, um, right at the beginning, he sets up the, what we now think of evolution, is entirely set up as this immensely complicated computer program, all right? And it would include, for instance, the extinction of species, I think would come, come under, but uh, uh, programs were better, would be conditional branching, that something, it's suddenly a, to a surprise to the outside, but it's already, it's all built in there. And, and God has invented this, uh, a miraculous machine, um, and uh, it, it works on this law, I'm quoting, so complicated, the analysis itself in its present state, can, can scarcely be grasped as a question, all right? But he, he launches that idea in answer to Huell. Um, and of course, when you reflect on it, and there would be, I would love to be able to do this, I don't think I'm actually competent to do it, but it, it seems to me that Babbage has got a notion, a Darwinian notion of evolution, but he's expressed it in terms of God as the first computer programmer. All right, okay. so, good. Um, and one other thing there, um, there Babbage uh, also is complex in a way that hasn't quite come out, I don't think, at the moment. Here's a passage um, from that ninth uh, Bridgewater Treatise. Uh, and he's thinking of the question, still thinking as a, a, a computer man in a sense, but what happens to the human voice when it speaks, if you look at it um, technically, scientifically. The pulsations of the air, I'm quoting, once set in motion by the human voice, ceased not to exist with sounds to which they gave rise. The waves of that air, thus raised, perambulate the earth's and the ocean's surface, every atom of which must continue to influence its path throughout its future existence. The air itself is thus one vast library on whose pages are forever written all that man has ever said or woman whispered. Ah. <laughs> okay. So again, I, I think that that kind of thing would... you. It's quite clear that this appealed to Ada, and it, it raises certain technical questions, uh, uh, well, about infinity and so on. Um, and one other further note I want to is that um, mention that Ada also read, um, see if I can get this up quickly, just get up his image again. No, it'll do. Huell's uh, um, History of the Inductive Sciences. Um, and this set her on the path of this discussion of what is discovery, because Huell put forward a notion of induction, which very simply meant that facts are gathered, gathered, and gathered, and finally they get threaded on a string and you have a law, all right? It's a very crude way of putting what he did. But Ada then becomes fascinated by this notion, what is discovery? How does it work in the human mind? It's very important, we're in an age of great discovery. What kind of imagination is it that discovers things. And she writes, I intend to incorporate with one department of, with one department of my labours a complete reduction to a system of the principles and methods of discovery, elucidating the same with full examples. And I am already noting down a list of discoveries hitherto made in order myself to examine into their history, origin, and progress. So she's going to write an even better book 
than Huell. Now, it's one of the many projects she didn't write, but it's very important that she was thinking like that. And it's partly the result of reading these books, uh, the treaties, and then the history of induction. Um, and of course, from that, I'll just read that, the famous note on imagination, which Betty has referred to, uh, which I think was partly inspired uh, by Hugh, but also by Coleridge and the biographica and his idea of the imagination. And she says it's three things, the combining faculty, the conceiving faculty, and third, imagination is the discovering faculty preeminently. It's that which penetrates into the unseen worlds around us, the worlds of science. And again, repeating that theme. So uh, that comes partly from her reading and partly from her own fascination with herself. Now, um, gradually there's a curve to describe what I'm going to do, but basically it's speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. I think it's an acceleration curve, all right, because uh, I'm aware that the evening is drawing to a close. Faraday, um, we know about the extraordinary uh, uh, s s dialogue, a set of letters between them that he... Um, refuses in the end to take her on as a pupil. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody's made the famous quote, that this is um, Babbage introducing Ada to Faraday, that enchantress who has thrown her magical spell around the most abstract of sciences and has grasped it with a force that few masculine intellects, in our country at least, could have exerted over it. Uh, and that wonderful introduction, uh, and in fact, uh, what then happens is Ada says that um, she wants to work out this uh, uh, system, nervous system and analysis of the nervous system, and then she says to Faraday, I mean, unless you discourage me, to undertake your researches for a review, or at any rate, as the hinge and centre for an electrical article probably to be published by the quarterly. And again, she's taking on, she wants to explain this instinct to be... Uh, and the theme here is that, is that science needs popularising and explaining in a way that Mary Somerville had done, and Ada also wants to do that, which she did, of course, brilliantly with the computer, but she also wants to do it for Faraday. Um, we mentioned mesmerism. I just want to say a word about that. Um, she, another amazing range, uh, Ada gets interested it, from a technical point of view in mesmerism. Um, Harriet Martineau, very interesting, a, a woman journalist who'd uh, travelled in America, wrote a best-selling book on political economy, and then got very ill. And incidentally, with an illness similar to what the illness that killed Ada, some form of uterine cancer. And there was no way of treating this except opium. And she went and, and took up rooms in, uh, in Newcastle um, and she decided to try mesmerism as a treatment. And she was, as it were, holed up there for three or four years, having a course of mesmerism. And the amazing thing is she was cured. She was cured. And she came down and she lived till 1876 and wrote, all right. Now, the reasons for that cure, of course, are, that's the question. Is it, is it a form uh, of the placebo principle, very probably? Or does it depend on the kind of disease it was and so on? And um, Ada got fascinated by this, uh, but she was also interested in testing it. She wasn't happy just to accept um, the letters on mesmerism. Uh, uh, and here's a passage, she writes that um, one has to be uh, careful about what she calls scientific amateurs who lack the really requisite extents of precaution and scepticism and against the avowedly scientific who are far too easily operated upon and incidentally by enthusiasm, the human tendency to snatch at the occult, the mysterious and indefinite rather than simple facts. So a bit of self-criticism going on there. Uh, and her uh, notes on that, she then links it to the work on, from mesmerism to animal magnetism, and from that to the development of photography, because that is a way of possibly recording 
what might be the magnetic influence which is produced by mesmerism, but it needs to be tested. What, what we believe that it is yet unsuspected how important a part photography is to play in the advance of human knowledge and in the development of the occult in nature, by which she doesn't mean what we mean by occult, she simply means what is not visible. We <coughs> need to develop instruments in order to discover that. Um, Mr. Anonymous, very suitable because we've got four minutes. Um, <laughs> this extraordinary book called The Vestiges of the History of Natural, uh, the Natural History of Creation, um, published in 1844, anonymous because it put forward um, an early theory of evolution. The Examiner magazine, this is the first attempt that has been made to connect the natural sciences in a history of creation, and it covers the early history of mankind, on the mental constitution of animals and the purpose of the animated creation. And he mounts all kinds of arguments, um, but basically giving uh, straight scientific explanations. For example, there's a wonderful section on the constitution of animal intelligence. And he argues that there's a straight um, panorama through the simplest animal intelligence to human intelligence, and it can be traced through. Now, this is very dangerous stuff. That's why he was Mr. Anonymous, all right? Now, we know Ada got hold of that book. In fact, Babbage famously said um, to, uh, to her husband, uh, has she read it if she hasn't actually written it? <laughs> it, it is, uh, and indeed, um, the uh, man, man called Sedgwick, who, Adam Sedgwick, who was a very conservative um, reviewer, academic, uh, reviewed it with great insinuations that it, it was so outrageous, this book, that it must have been written by a woman author. Kind of thing. <laughs> so good. Uh, also, a very interesting story. This is the moment, 1844, that Darwin is suddenly hustled and bustled into writing that preliminary essay about evolution. Of course, he doesn't publish until 1859. But he, put, he writes very, very rapidly, having read The Vestiges. Uh, and there are all sorts of passages. I'll just read you one because we've got two minutes. Um, that, no, I won't, because I want to send the hair running. It was going to be about photography, uh, and Chambers suggests that photography is a form of memory and illustration of memory. Um, I would also have talked about Humboldt. Two minutes. Uh, we know that Ada read Cosmos. She was absolutely fascinated by Humboldt's idea of uh, universal geography and wrote about it and wrote about German science in general. And here's the hair I want to start running, is that did she read Tennyson? Did she read Tennyson? In Memoriam, 1850. But even more than that, this poem called The Princess, which seems to be almost entirely forgotten, we know that Babbage knew Tennyson, and we know for a very good Babbage-like reason that he wrote to Tennyson in 1850, uh, said, I much enjoyed your poems. There's one line that worries me a bit. And the line is, every moment dies a man, every moment one is born. All right? Babbage says, <laughs> dear, he was not yet Lord Tennyson, um, there seems to be a contradiction here because this implies that the popula human population must be static. <laughs> and then he makes this wonderful Babbage suggestion. May I suggest, every moment dies a man. Every moment, one and one-sixteenth is born. <laughs> and then the absolute why Babbage is so great is one more sentence. He says... Dear Tennyson, may I add that the exact figure is 1.167, <laughs> but something must, of course, be conceded to the laws of meter. <laughs> you, you know why I ate enough beverage. Okay, okay the, the horse I want to, the hair I want to run, um, is that Tennyson published an almost forgotten poem now called The Princess, which is about an extraordinary subject look at the date, 1848, which is about a university entirely of women. Women professors, women students, all right? Uh, and he explores also, they're studying a lot of science. Uh, it's a wonderful description of here's a lecture. And then we stroll, they, they, they visit 
a group of men dress up as women in order that they can get into the university. And then they observe the teaching, which is formidable. And then we strolled for half the day through stately lecture theatres, benched, crescent-wise. In each we sat, we heard the grave professor, woman professor, on the lecture slate, slate, the circle rounded under female hands, the slate, the big blackboard, with flawless demonstration, followed then a classic lecture. We dipped in awe, the total chronicles of man, the mind, the star, the bird, the fish, the shell, the flower, electric, chemic laws, all the rest, and whatsoever can be taught and known. So it's, it is partly satiric, but it is not entirely satiric. And there's a very interesting thing here. The lead, the heroine, her name is Princess Ida. All right? <laughs> now, I throw it out. I throw it out there. Was there proof that Tennyson knew about Ada? Certainly he knew about the great movement which was beginning for women's education. Queen's College in London was founded in that, in fact, the year he was writing the poem, in 1847. And of course, we know Newnham, Cambridge, 1871, and Somerville uh, next door in 78. So I, I let that, um, that hair run. And I finish with this. That's uh, the third and the last. In fact, of course, we know it's a daguerreotype. It's on display, and Ursa uh, was talking about it. Very touching. Uh, a photograph, daguerreotype of a painting, pretty well reckoned to be 1852, which is very, very late. And there's a description of Ada having really to be held up. It's so painful for her. And she's playing the piano which I suggest to you is a machine in some way related uh, musically to the computer. This is one of the last things she wrote about the future. She's dying, but she writes this. I have, however, the hope that my theories will be most harmoniously disciplined troops, consisting of vast numbers and marching in irresistible power to the sound of music. Is not this very mysterious? Certainly my troops must consist of numbers, or they can have no existence at all. But then, what are these numbers? Now there is the riddle, question mark. All right. Remember, my title has a question mark. And I want to put two short extracts <coughs> against this. Um, Remember that uh, Ada associated Brighton with health and she went down to health and the sound of the sea and so on. And she'd also, she knew David Brewster, who'd written the first biography of Newton, first edition published in 1831. And it's that book, that biography, which makes famous this remark, which you'll all know, but it's so lovely to read. And remember, think of Beaches, Ada. This is Newton as quoted by David Brewster. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. One might want to replace boy with girl, with girl. And my final quote is this. We know that when Ada was dying, Dickens came to see her, her old friend Dickens. And she'd read his American notes, she'd read a number of novels, but Dombey and Son was her favourite. And we know that he read something to, about the death of little Paul. And people usually assume that it's the moment the little Paul actually dies, which is a heartbreaking moment. Little Paul is in Brighton and he can hear the sea. <coughs> and I suggest this short passage is what Dickens read to Ada. Paul fell asleep and slept quietly for a long time. Awaking suddenly, he listened, started up, and sat listening. His sister Florence asked him what he thought he heard. I want to know what it says, he answered, looking steadily into her face. 
the sea, Floy? What is it that it keeps on saying? She told him that it was only the noise of the rolling waves. Thank you. <laughs>